0: Tonight on Talking Politics, the T is under new federal scrutiny after a slew of accidents, including the death of a man who was caught in the door of a Red Line train. What could that mean for the future, and how in the world did things get this bad? We'll discuss ahead, but first, the race for Suffolk County DA is heating up, thanks to an endorsement from Boston Mayor Michelle Wu.
1: I am so proud and so honored to stand alongside, to be fighting for, to get ready to vote for, our next district attorney, Ricardo Arroyo.
0: after Wu backed her former city council colleague, Arroyo's opponent, Interim DA Kevin Hayden, shot back through a statement from his campaign manager who said, quote, if Mayor Wu believes a novice attorney with zero public safety experience should be the top law enforcement officer in the county, that's her choice. We're confident voters will disagree. Joining me to discuss this and more are GBH News City Hall reporter, Soraya Wintersmith, and State House News Service reporter, Chris Lesinski. Thank you both for being here. Soraya, was Michelle Wu's endorsement of Ricardo Arroyo a surprise?
1: I would say no, Adam. The two have been council colleagues. Um, Wu was at Arroyo's election night party when he won that Hyde Park mattapan district seat a couple years back. Uh, Arroyo also endorsed Wu in the mayor's race, of course, after after his first pick did not advance into the final round. Um, and I think also when it comes to legislation or just general efforts that the council has put forward um, in terms of police reform or, or um, uh, law enforcement, they're pretty aligned. I'm thinking about the ban on facial recognition technology, the putting away of or the limiting of tear gas and rubber bullets. The effort to reallocate money after the protests of 2020 um, towards crime prevention and community programming, they're, they're aligned when it comes to things like that.
0: Okay, so a lot of understandable reasons that she would move to endorse him. Chris, when you look at Kevin Hayden's approach to criminal justice and contrast it to Ricardo Arroyo's, how much daylight is there between the two of them?
2: I think there is a decent amount of daylight between the two of them. You know, Ricardo Arroyo, right out of the gates when he launched his bid for Suffolk County DA, he positioned himself as someone who would continue the reform-minded approach that former DA Rachel Rollins took before she departed to become U.S. attorney. You know, remember, early on in her term as DA, she put out a memo making it her office's default policy not to prosecute some lower-level and misdemeanor crimes like misdemeanor trespassing and drug possession. Arroyo said that he really wants to focus on accountability, equity. Um, He's an opponent of qualified immunity. Hayden hasn't exactly rebuffed that kind of progressive prosecution, but he also hasn't embraced the approach that Rollins took or made it a central principle of his interim tenure or his campaign for the full-time job that he will keep that in place. Um, He stands more in the middle between a traditional prosecutor's role and a progressive prosecutor, says he'll look for alternatives in some cases, but won't make it a a de facto policy to avoid prosecution. I think part of this, too, comes from their their different perspectives. You know, Arroyo is running as the top prosecutor as a former public defender, while Hayden himself used to work as a prosecutor in this very office.
0: That's a great point. Incredibly different worldviews between those two positions. Soraya, the Hayden Camp's response, which I read a moment ago, struck me as quite sharp. What, if anything, can we make of the tenor of their response and what it says about
1: the contours of the race? I think it is a reasonable inference that the campaign was sort of irked by this endorsement because it's kind of a defining one. It plays well for Arroyo politically, just because he's a known quantity around Boston. He launched his campaign with the support of a lot of other public officials. And he's cast himself as the heir to Rachel Rollins, who won campaigning as a progressive, just like Wu did. Hayden, meanwhile, is a first-time candidate for office. So he has to define himself, but he's not doing it by pointing to other elected friends. I said when I did my first interview with him, we asked whether or not he would consider himself a progressive or reformist DA, and he kind of rejected that label. He's not trying Hmm. to cast himself as Rollins' heir. Um, I do think it's interesting that that response did pit him against Mayor Michelle Wu. I said in this week's politics newsletter that she's become a symbol. That, of course, means different things to different people and he's choosing to define himself against the mayor of Boston.
0: Chris, speaking of Michelle Wu and how she's viewed by people who don't work with her on a daily basis, what's your sense of how she's regarded in the State House, broadly speaking, both as a policy-making partner, potentially, and as a political force?
2: Mayor Who is obviously popular among the most progressive members of the State House, but I think something that gets flattened a lot when we think of Democratic super majorities in the House and the Senate is that a lot of those are, are really centrist Democrats who are to the right of where Mayor Wu stands. We got some early signs early on in her term that her leadership in Boston might move the needle on some progressive priorities, especially compared to the tenure of, of Marty Walsh. Um, I think back to the fall when Governor Baker, who has long opposed rent control, said something to the effect of, he would at least leave the door open a little bit. Yeah, to discuss I that the too. Idea. Um, but I think we also, especially in recent months, are seeing a lot more from the inaction on Beacon Hill. You know, rent control, fare free transit, two of Mayor Wu's top campaign priorities, those haven't gone anywhere in the six months since she won the election. Those are in effectively the same position as before she won. There's no movement yet on the real estate transfer tax, the city council approved that she stamped. So I think we're still waiting to see which direction the political pressure is going to flow, if it's from City Hall to the State House or vice
0: versa. I'm glad you mentioned those points of convergence between City Hall and the State House. Is it fair to assume, since we are getting fairly late in the legislative process and they have a whole bunch of big stuff to get to, that if those things haven't advanced up until now, their prospects aren't terrific by the end of this legislative session?
2: I think saying their prospects aren't terrific is fair, but as you know, we've seen this time and time again that things just come out of left yeah. field on Beacon Hill. They're in committee for up until the moment that they're not, and suddenly they're moving on the floor. So they're still in play, but um, we haven't gotten any indications. The best tea lead reading indicates they're not going anywhere just yet.
0: Okay. Uh, Soraya, the last time you were on the show a couple weeks ago, I suggested to you and Sean Cotter from the Boston Herald that the big brouhaha over outdoor dining in the North End was drawing to a close. Let's take a look at how I put it. The great North End dining fight of 2022 may be ending not with a bang, but with a whimper. Uh, Soraya, I apparently was completely wrong when I said that, although I did use the conditional May, but I was still completely wrong. What is the latest development that People who are interested in watching this back and forth should be taking note of.
1: Not completely wrong. We use the conditional yeah, name, but yeah. the saga does continue <laughs> this time with a federal court case um, filed this week by four North End restaurant owners who believe that their constitutional rights were violated when Mayor Wu rolled out this city's season of outdoor dining with participation fees. Um, it is a preliminary sort of filing. It's only seven pages long. It doesn't go through the how um, of the counts of the suit, but I spoke with the restaurant owner's attorney this morning, um, Richard Chambers, and he says he expects to file an amended complaint with a fuller explanation of each of the counts and that uh, he may also add a few more North End restaurant owners. Um, some time between now and when they're supposed to serve the mayor. I think they have 90 days before they give the mayor the official notice of the complaint.
0: That's great info. I had not heard that elsewhere. (laughs) I find myself wondering, and I'm not asking you or Chris to weigh on this, but when I read about this back and forth, a lot of times, I'll read about it on Universal Hub, and the comments are a—you know—it's a small sample size. It's Universal Hub commenters, but some people weigh in and say, "Okay, I know where I'm never going to eat again. I would love to know, and maybe we'll learn in the future what the commercial implications of this litigation and this opposition are going to be. Maybe they'll benefit. Um, we shall see." Chris, there's another hot button issue that's been playing its way at, uh, playing its way out at the state house over the past few months the push, which you've reported on, to allow undocumented immigrants who can establish their proof of residency to get driver's licenses. It seems like it's moving forward and is going to happen despite vocal opposition from Governor Baker, who came out this week, as as he has before, and suggested that there could be voting irregularities created if this becomes law. And it's moving forward despite the fact that public polling on the issue suggests the public is really split kind of 50-50 on whether this is a good idea. Am I right to be surprised from outside the building that there isn't more opposition to or ambivalence about this legislation?
2: I understand where you're coming from with that feeling. You know, it's certainly a noteworthy contrast between the public polling and the results in the legislature, especially compared to other topics that poll well, but historically don't go anywhere. Up until about a month ago, sports betting was really popular and had never come up for a vote in the Senate. So there's not always alignment between polls and what happens in the legislature. But I think that this speaks a lot to the way that Beacon Hill operates. It really is a top-down leadership style where Democrats who run that House and the Senate almost never bring anything to the floor unless they're confident from their closed-door meetings, not only that it will pass, but that the caucus will be almost unified, maybe a few detractors here or there, but that they will have a really strong show of support um, rather than dissent within their ranks.
0: Sorry, you got the last question in this debrief. Mayor Wu, back to City Hall for a second, made a big announcement yesterday about a Green New Deal for the Boston public school system. What are the highlights of what she's proposing?
1: Yeah, this is a $2 billion effort from the mayor to update BPS buildings that have long been in disrepair. It's an issue that the mayor campaigned on last year. It's also another one of those ambitious goals that have been attempted in the past, but Wu is promising to do differently. In this case, she's focusing on the schools that according to a city assessment of where the schools are, Some of the most high needs ones are coming first in the pipeline of either construction or revamping. Uh, Her first budget has about $650 million and she's pledged to keep dedicating money to the effort in forthcoming budgets. Um, But she's also looking for help at other levels of government to get all of the BPS buildings updated. And maybe that's something that'll play into her endorsement.
0: Worth reminding people that she will need buy-in from the city council, right? Which now has more power in the budget process than it used to. They always have to
1: approve any ask of money that the mayor puts forward. That's right.
0: Okay. Soraya Wintersmith, Chris Lesinski, thank you both. Happy to do it. Thanks. Next up, when Robinson Lillian was dragged to his death on the T last month after his arm was caught in the door of a Red Line train, federal officials quickly got involved. But the details of that involvement were murky until this week when the Boston Globe got a hold of and reported on a letter in which the Federal Transit Administration said it's extremely concerned with the ongoing safety issues at the T which also include the death of a woman in January who was killed when her car was hit by a commuter rail train after crossing gates and lights did not activate in time, and the BU professor who died after falling through a rusted staircase at JFK UMass Station in Dorchester last fall and the Green Line train crash in Brighton last summer that sent more than two dozen people to the hospital. Those are just some of the breakdowns the T's had in the past year, which may be why the FTA says it's going to take on an increased safety oversight role of the system. So what might that mean moving forward and what does it say about Governor Charlie Baker's stewardship of the T over the past seven plus years? I'm joined by former Massachusetts Secretary of Transportation, Jim Aloisi. He's now a lecturer of transportation policy and planning at MIT and a member of the Transit Matters Board, and by Stacy Thompson, the Executive Director of Livable Streets Alliance. Thank you both for being here. Jim, you and your colleagues at Transit Matters put out a statement after The Globe reported on this letter in which you said, among other things, we have confidence that overall the MBTA is safe. To some people, including me, that seems like an optimistic assessment, given everything that we've just described and some other things that we haven't. How did you reach that conclusion? Thanks, Adam. I don't think it's optimistic. I think it's realistic.
3: I I reached the conclusion by the facts and the data. I mean, you have just gone through, obviously, a series of um, unfortunate and some horrific events that have occurred in a kind of perfect storm environment of events, but I want to remind, I mean, I take the tea almost every day. So from a personal perspective, I find it safe. I want to remind people it's an old and large system that things will happen. We don't want those things to happen, but by definition it doesn't translate to it's being unsafe. I'd point out just in the city of Boston, there's probably uh, the data says there are 12 to 15 collisions in by automobiles every single day. In 2020, right? the data in 2020 in the state of Massachusetts, 286 people died in car crashes, right? Uh, There were 76,000 reported collisions. No one thinks the highway system is unsafe and we shouldn't use it. So there has to be some perspective. It doesn't mean the system can't be better and safer. Sure
0: can, and we'll talk about it, but I don't think it's unsafe. Stacy, do you agree with the assessment that I described Jim and the other people at Transit Matters reaching when it comes to safety?
4: Yes, I completely agree with Jim and the Transit, Matter crew, Ma- Tra- Transit Matters crew, rather. Um, what I would say is that the uh, Something can be safe, like the T. I've been on the T several times since the most recent incident. I confidently ride it every single week. Um, I My team works with bus drivers on some of their training. We know that the T in particular has some of the safest bus drivers in the country. And in fact, the bus system isn't even part of this FTA review. The subway system and trolley system is. So that should be an indication that it's not the whole system, it's pieces that have had chronic issues. But the reason why we're concerned is that there is a transparency and accountability issue. And so that's where a safe system that Jim and I both believe in right now could become unsafe if we don't deal with the transparency and accountability issue at the leadership level.
0: Let's talk more about that. You and Jim and other transit advocates have been frustrated for a while with the opacity around the T's board of directors. can you describe what their MO has been and contrast it to what you would like them to do as a rule?
4: Yeah, I think a little bit of history might be helpful here. Not to go too into the weeds, but this is actually the second iteration of an MBTA board under the Baker administration. So shortly after the snow apocalypse of 2015, Governor Baker said, hey, look, we need a board to deal with the chaos that's happening at the T. People like Jim and I were skeptical at the time, Um, but he appointed some great people who really got their hands dirty. And when things happened like the derailment in 2018, I believe, they took immediate action. They were vocal. They made sure that there were, uh, is an outside assessment. There are many examples of the previous board getting out there publicly, um, pushing on the general manager, pushing on the governor, saying, look, we've got to make some changes. But that word sunsetted. The governor allowed that board to sunset. And then the legislature created a mandate to create a new board. And in that transition, the new board has been um, much quieter, Uh, you know, I think that there's a good case to be made that they don't need to be quite as in the weeds as the last board. But in that time we've had a number of safety incidents. We have a lot of fair policy and um, we haven't seen this board take these issues seriously. And we have been asking for them to dig in deeper. We've been asking for them to add, you know, ask harder questions. And we've largely, largely seen silence. Um, and we saw that our concerns as advocates reflected directly by the FTA. That letter, as the governor alluded to in his comments yesterday, was not a, hey, we want to give you some best practices about what other uh <laughs> you know places are doing around the country. It said, we talk to your leadership and we are so concerned. Concerned that we are intervening that's that should make the governor concerned and it means that folks like Jim and I aren't crazy when we say hey we're worried that the board isn't asking enough questions
0: it's worth reminding people I think that and tell me if I've got the details wrong here but in the first safety committee meeting of the current board of directors it came just days after Robertson uh was killed and I don't think they brought up his death correct I think they, did,
4: they So the, his death was brought up. They did not bring up the safety issues. Okay, thank you. Very was, very yeah. important
0: correction. Thank you for that.
4: Yeah, and they asked that their condolences be uh, put on the record, Okay, uh, but did not include any sort of follow-up around the safety issues.
0: Uh, Jim, in your Transit Matters uh, statement, you criticized Governor Baker and the legislature for not doing more to put the T on a firm financial foundation. Again, this I know is somewhat down in the weeds uh, and some people will have heard it before, but I think it's good to get a refresher. How does funding work right now and how would you like to see it work to make the system better long-term?
3: I think it's important to say really quickly, the T you have to think about the T having, as it does have, two budgets. There's an operating budget. That's what you use to pay people with, right? A debt service. That's the day-to-day budget. Then there's a capital budget that's what you use to build things. I'm being you know, generalizing, right? Mm-hmm. <clears throat> Under this administration it has gotten more robust. The FMCB was pretty good about that. And that money typically comes from transportation bond bills, right? From, from leveraging the private sector capital market with bond money. and federal formula funds. The federal government doesn't pay a nickel toward operating budget expenses. And it's the operating budget expenses that have been historically shortchanged in, in, in shortfall, right? You can't hire the personnel resources that you need to manage projects, to do safety training, to do the kinds of things that I'm sure the FTA is going to be asking them without a more robust operating budget. And that's the problem, right? So right now <clears throat> that operating budget is comprised, it's about a $2 billion annual budget. Half of that or so comes from the state sales staff. Then a a large amount pre-pandemic came from fair revenue, pre-pandemic about $670 million in fair revenue. Now that has been reduced because of the pandemic. Thanks to the president of the United States and Congress, they have filled that gap, but that's a, that gap is soon the, the federal relief, one time only and gone. Now we've got a T that says it's going to have a shortfall next year, about $230 The data that came out in this week's budget meeting suggests they may be closing that gap, which is good. But I can assure you and everyone listening, if the FTA does what it looks like it will do, it will begin to issue directives to the T that will cost money. And a lot of that will be operating costs. And the T doesn't, have right now the capacity to deal with it, which is why I call on the legislature not to sit back and wait because it can't, but to act now to find stable revenue sources for the MBTA, particularly on the operators.
0: So what, uh, and just just briefly, and then I wanna ask you about the politics of that call and, and potentially them responding to it or maybe not responding to it. How would you like to see the legislature, what could they do? To provide the dedicated funding stream that you're talking about?
3: Well, I'll give you two things they could do in the transportation bond bill or budget right now this year that wouldn't cost a nickel to any Massachusetts taxpayer. They can say that the Commonwealth, henceforward, will pay 100% of the annual costs of paratransit. That would take over $100 million off the T's operating budget. They could also say that the Commonwealth will absorb at least half of the T's debt service, at least all of it, that still relates, still relates to the Central Ottery Tunnel Project, and maybe more. If they just took those costs away from the T and absorbed them as the state, which I think they should, that would help free up
0: probably $200 million, maybe more, uh, of operating expenses. Okay. They don't have to do that. Thanks for those, those specific suggestions. Let me ask you both. Um, isn't it a tough sell politically to say to the legislature, we need you to invest more uh, because things are in bad shape? Because there is a crisis of confidence that we're in the midst of, doesn't that make getting them to take the, and I understand that it's, it's all related and it's circular, but Stacey, I see you nodding. Does it, does it make it tough to get the legislature to take ideas like the ones Jim just floated seriously?
4: No, because again, to me, the issue is not actually um, that they should be concerned about leadership. It's that they have power to intervene and hold the administration accountable. So when they, you know, to say the legislature is in no position right now to say we have a lack of confidence because they haven't even called a hearing. They have not even called the governor or the general manager in to say, look, we heard the, fed, the feds are getting involved. The only reason we know this is that the Globe was able to access a letter that you did not share publicly with us, and we want you to tell us what's going on. They can ask for that information so that they can make informed decisions, just as Jim is recommending, ahead of the next legislation cycle, which will be a complete chaos for the next governor um, and for the next legislative body if they don't take action now. And to act as though they don't have power or don't have oversight responsibility in this moment is giving their power away. And I don't think anyone in that position would say that they would want to be doing that.
0: Jim, politically speaking, why does the legislature take the sort of laissez-faire approach that Stacey just described? Is it because so many people represent districts that are not served by the T? Is it because you know, it's easier to, to blame others for mismanagement rather than to get your own hands dirty? Is it something else that I'm missing?
3: I think it's all of the above and more. You know, if you're a state legislator from Agawan, you, know, you wonder why you should be taking votes to raise revenue for the MBTA, right? And by the way, you're kind of annoyed that part of the sales tax that your constituents are paying out west is going to support the team. So there's that dynamic politically. And then there's just the political dynamic, frankly, that I think has taken root in the state house, which is, oh, there were all these silver bullets, so we don't have to do anything, right? So let me be clear. If anyone is an elected official at the state house level thinks that the potential uh, success of the millionaire tax is a silver bullet it isn't we can go into detail why right yeah if they think the government is coming to the rescue it isn't because the federal government doesn't pay for operating budget expenses right it Did during the pandemic as a one-time relief deal but it hasn't paid for operating costs That's the Reagan administration.
0: I'm glad that you mentioned the millionaires tax because I've gotten the impression, I covered the kickoff of that campaign to create a new 4% tax on incomes over a million earlier this week. And you do get the impression sometimes that the proponents think this is just gonna fix everything. I wanna show some video, I apologize, I wanna show some video of Governor Baker seven years ago after the snowpocalypse that we mentioned earlier, this crazy biblical barrage of snowfall. He essentially said he was tired of hearing reasons that the tea wasn't working the way it was supposed to. Let's take a look.
3: I'm sort of done with excuses, okay? I want to hear what people are actually going to do to get the riding public back to the point where people can depend on and rely on the service.
0: Uh, Stacy, you talked about the fiscal control board the governor put in place early on, and Jim, you did this too, doing a good job. Beyond that, um, how much credit should he get for making improvements to the system, despite where it's at right now? And conversely, how much should people be saying, You know what? Um, You've been the governor for nearly eight years. We're also tired of hearing excuses.
4: Yeah, so I can give credit where credit is due and say the previous board did a good job and we did increase capital investment. Those are good things. But the question is, was it an appropriate response to the size of the existing crisis? And I think the answer to that is definitively no. You know, the analogy that I frequently use is if you're a homeowner, can you pay your bills and can you make your repairs? And essentially what uh, you might say is, well, Charlie Baker um, maybe replaced the hot water heater but the roof is caving in. And so you can't just keep saying, but look, I will just keep turning up the heat. I replaced this water heater when the rest is falling apart. So yes, there was investment. Definitively, there has not been enough. And when we've asked hard questions, especially around finances, the administration has uh, refused to get down and dirty into the details um, or has deferred and said, look at what we're already doing
0: over. Uh, That analogy is actually extremely helpful and also somewhat depressing. Uh, I'd love to talk to you two more about this, especially if the FDA basically takes the system into receivership, as Jim, you've said it seems likely to do in the interim. Jim Aloisi and Stacey Thompson, thank you. That is it for tonight, but do come back next week, and please tell us what you think. For now, thanks for watching, and good night. Hey, you two. I'm sorry I didn't give you more time to talk about, explicitly about what's coming up. Jim, you teased it a little bit, God bless you earlier on, saying it's looking like they're gonna do this, they'll yeah. require this to happen. Um, I think it's important to know,
3: just for your, so there's a worst case scenario and a not so worst case scenario. Like So right now the FTA is clearly gonna do the safety management inspection that they said they're gonna do. We don't know because, as Stacy pointed out, there's no transparency. Mm-hmm you don't even know if that's begun, right? Um, In Washington DC, when they did that a few years back, that took around four months to do. So if they're doing that, let's say it'll take the same four months. At that point, we'll know whether they want to trigger what they did in Washington or some variant of that, to use the word variant, (laughs) some variation of that, right? If they do exactly what they did in Washington, it's virtual receivership for the operations and maintenance safety component of what the T does. What I am concerned about is there'll be unfunded mandates because what they'll do, what they did in Washington is they issue what they, these things they call safety directives. You must do this, you must do that. And if they don't, the state doesn't do that, the state loses federal funding, right? Yeah. So I think, it, it's, a, it's yeah. a really bad situation my concern is there's not enough funding in the operating budget to accommodate that and then what WMATA did is they raised fares they cut service they were really in bad shape and I think Stacy and I and other advocates are not going to sit back idly and let that happen here just that's why we need the legislature frankly to understand this better now when they have the tools and the budget and the bond bill to do something about it yeah
4: the only other thing that I would add just in case it comes up, you know, the governor and the general manager have done a lot of positive. We are welcoming the FTA, you know. the If they had any way had not complied, the federal, the FTA would have shut the system down. So like it wasn't, it was your options are comply within 24 hours yeah. or we shut the T down. And I feel like that's getting, it's not clear to people how serious the mandate is, so.
0: I'm sorry that I didn't give both, like these are, these are great points and I wish that's I'd so found much. it. You made a lot of other great points. But, I'm the glad.
3: The time, but you may want to write about it, you know.
0: That's a good idea. And I don't yeah. want to, I should talk to Bob C. And see if there's some way that we can we can share it. Um, and I would love, when the time is right, the next shoe drops, whatever it is. I'd love mm-hmm. to have you two back to just continue this. Sure. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. There
4: will be an assessment and an update. So you know where to find us. Okay,
0: cool. <laughs> Always another
3: shoe in the...
0: <laughs> Thank you both. Really appreciate she it. Knew. Have a good weekend. Shana. Bye.